Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Myland Institute podcast. Today, we are really, really pleased to be able to welcome two guests. Uh, the first is Patrick Diamond, who has just published a book called uh, The British Labour Party in Opposition and Power, 1979 to 2019. And Patrick is Associate Professor of Politics and Public Policy at Queen Mary University of London and therefore well known to the Myland Institute and a, a colleague of mine. Welcome, Patrick. Nice to be here, Tim. And also we have with us Emma Bonnell, who is a podcaster, a journalist, and at the moment uh, she's best known for a new uh, departure from her, which is a hard thinking on the soft left, which includes her thoughts on you know how the Labour Party is going and, and where it ought to go. And I can recommend that to uh, everybody who is interested in the Labour Party. Presumably, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you are interested not only in British politics in general, but the Labour Party in particular. So we've got two ideal people to talk not only about uh, the Labour Party's past, but also perhaps about the Labour Party's present and indeed its future. I'm going to come to Patrick, first of all. Your book isn't just about new Labour, but a lot of it is. And although it's by no means uncritical, it does try to bust some of the myths about the Blair Brown era, probably the chief of which is that basically it represented a, a surrender to neoliberalism, if you like. But before we get on to, to that case for the defence, as it were, as well as to the criticism we might legitimately make of the 13 years they spent in office, I'd like to start by asking you why you think that accusation, that you know, the idea that Blair and Brown surrendered to neoliberalism, has become almost common wisdom, especially among people within the party itself. Well, it's a seductive idea in a sense that we can simply characterise the whole of the New Labour period as being this capitulation to neoliberalism or, as is said in some quarters, um, a capitulation to Thatcherism. I think there are various reasons why that's the case. I think it's partly to do with the shadow which Thatcherism casts over British politics. Um, the Thatcher period was seen, I think, as so transformational, as so important, as so significant in terms of its consequences for economic and social policy, that what comes after is almost inevitably seen as being a consolidation of or building upon Thatcherite, new right, neoliberal policies. But as I try to show in the book, I think that's just a very simplistic way of looking at what New Labour did. There were certainly aspects of Labour's economic and social policies after 1997 that took some elements of neoliberalism. But to simply dismiss the whole period as just a capitulation to neoliberalism is, I think, overstated and oversimplistic. Emma, I mean, relative to Patrick, who's, uh, I should say um, for listeners, is it's quite unusual among British political scientists because he's actually worked in the number 10 he, he writes about. You've got, in some ways, less skin in the game when it comes to Blair and Brown, perhaps. Does that mean that you'd be happy to take up your pitchfork and your flaming torch and lay into both of those guys uh, who occupied number 10 between 97 and 2010? Or, or do you buy Patrick's argument that even the left, whether whether soft or hard, needs to recognise that they weren't simply sons of Thatcher? Uh, and if you do recognise that, what would you single out as their, their particular lasting achievements, if you like? So I think that's a bunch of interesting questions that have different answers, to be honest with you. Starting from the last one, I think the lasting achievements point is the hardest problem. And I think mm. Patrick makes that quite clear in his book. The centrality of ideas in in Patrick's book is is the problem, I think. I think they did a lot of good. I'm happy to say they weren't just sons of Thatcher, 
But what they didn't do was do what Thatcher did, which is completely change the political landscape fundamentally to a point where it couldn't be changed back. So I thought that the whole concept of what Patrick calls ideas, I would probably call stories, but that's because I'm a communicator at heart. But I think that the problem is, while they weren't particularly totally neoliberal, although, as Patrick says, they did have some aspects of that, what they didn't do was offer a new way of thinking that changed things in the depths of politics to the point where they couldn't be changed back. So, you know, 10 years of austerity made the differences that that Blair and Brown did in things like child poverty, which were incredible. Pensioner poverty, actually, has been probably one of the things that stuck. But it's been hard to see a lasting legacy in some ways. We'll come back to some of the the problems. Um, Patrick, would you add anything to to Emma's list there in in terms of the achievements? She she singled out in particular, you know, the attack on child poverty, the attack on pensioner poverty. Anything else that you'd point to in particular and that you point to in the book in terms of achievements? Well, we can have a long discussion about the meaning of achievements. And I say that because I think that some of the governing achievements at the time, i.e. when Labour was in power, that were seen as very significant, in retrospect, do look more contested and perhaps to some extent less like achievements. So one obvious area would be constitutional reform and particularly devolution. I remember at the time, certainly, and as you rightly said, Tim, and I should declare for listeners that I was an advisor in the Labour governments between 2000 and 2005. So the way that I come at the book is, I guess, unusual. I'm not just writing as a political scientist, but I'm writing as somebody who was there for some of the events and saw them at first hand. You know, that has disadvantages, but it also has advantages. But I want to be very clear about that from the outset. I think in terms of the the devolution point, what's interesting is that at the time when I was in government, devolution was one of the achievements that ministers would always refer to as being a big, lasting, significant legacy of Labour's period in power, or what would be a legacy once Labour left government. I think in retrospect, though, the devolution settlement does look more difficult and contested, as I said. Um, I think that's partly because of the issues, obviously, around Scottish independence in particular. But I think also when you look at the issues in Northern Ireland, for example, in the light of Brexit, it's clear that you know the devolution settlement was at very best half-formed, imperfect. Um, it wasn't a, a sort of fully-fledged, completed constitutional settlement. There were quite a few loose ends that were never tied up. And so in that sense, I think you know devolution and constitutional reform were an achievement because they did modernise the British constitution. But actually, when you look back, you know, lots of problems have been left in their wake. So I think that says something interesting about actually the ambiguity of governing achievements. I mean, one thing for me that always stands out in terms of something that's missing from um, New Labour in power in terms of their agenda was anything to do with tackling the, you know, the ridiculous undersupply of housing. Uh, in in the UK. And I wondered either as someone who worked in that government or indeed, you know, as someone who's analysing it in its wake, um, how do we explain that? Because that seems to me an incredible oversight. And yet, you know, it's the dog that didn't bark in so many ways. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I do try to address housing at different points in the book. And I think that the the failure to develop a really convincing housing policy, as you say, is um, a standout I think, aspect of Labour's underperformance in social policy. Why was it the case? I think there are several reasons that I would just want to mention. I think one is about an antipathy to social housing. Mm -hmm. So I think Labour culturally 
had, and I think this is where the, the relationship with Thatcherism becomes interesting, I think it had convinced itself that right-to-buy policies in the 1980s were very popular, particularly with, with those who were categorised as the aspirational working class. And this created a blind spot around social housing, which meant that Labour didn't invest in it and didn't see social housing as a priority or as a way of dealing with inadequate housing supply. And as I say in the book, it got to the point where the policy became very dysfunctional because what was happening is that government was using significant resources effectively to subsidise tenants in private rented sector accommodation, which was both expensive and not very good quality. So I think the failure to invest in social housing is a big and enduring negative legacy of Labour's period in power. As I say, I think it was partly to do with accepting the myth of right to buy too much, but also I think to do with a failure in government, frankly, to come up with more creative solutions to you know, the housing problems that Britain faced in this period. I do wonder, Patrick, if there isn't a connection between your last two answers, because when you talk about devolution, when Labour talked and did devolution to the nations, what they did was replicate the Westminster model. And New Labour seemed to have a fundamental kind of mistrust perhaps of of devolving power on a more local level Uh, and of course that is where council housing happens and that's so there was more action in things like housing associations and housing associations were more encouraged and a lot of housing was then outsourced by some local governments but I think that it it's interesting that 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 centralising tendency, that tendency to think of that's how government works. It works on the Whitehall model, works on the Westminster model. That may have a real impact as to why we were so poor at building more social housing. I think that's a very apposite point. And as you correctly say, in a way, the biggest weakness of all in housing policy was not so much the failure of the relevant department in Whitehall to come up with lots of you know bright, glitzy initiatives. It was really... Um, a failure to take seriously the need to decentralise not just policy-making power, but particularly borrowing powers to local Mm. authorities. And I think it's a really interesting question to interrogate why Labour was so reticent and opposed to doing this. I do remember in opposition before 1997, again, you go to lots of speeches by shadow Labour ministers who would talk about one of the first things that Labour would do in office is it would give local councils the freedom to borrow again so that they could invest in social housing. And it didn't happen. Lots of reasons why that's the case. I mean, I think one reason is to do with the, with the incipient centralism of Labour, that when it gets into government, I think every period that Labour's been in power, it has, rev- it has reverted to a centralised model for thinking about policy and delivery. I think that's an enduring feature of Attlee, the Wilson period, and to a large extent, the Blair-Brown period. May also be to do partly with Treasury influence. Treasury is... As, you know, has many great strengths as an institution, but often very cautious about the idea of devolving powers, particularly over borrowing of public money. So you know, they, may, they may be some of the explanations, but I think Emma's absolutely right to highlight the significance of centralisation as a kind of obstacle to effective policy making in areas like housing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you, you mentioned there very briefly, um, Patrick, you just touched on it, and uh, I'd like to ask Emma about it, is Blair and Brown believing in, you know, certain myths. And, and one of the things that really comes through the book really is is the excessive caution of those two figures. You know, they had a massive majority, but they were clearly, as you point out again and again, very scared of the right-wing press, convinced that they were governing an essentially conservative country, 
in which voter preferences were, you know, essentially fixed and, and couldn't really be shaped. Do you think? Do you think that was a real problem, Emma? And do you think, in some ways, that's what Keir Starmer is uh, is also facing accusations of right now? Yeah, I mean, that's long been my critique of New Labour was when they did good, they often did it by stealth and rather than telling the story of the good that they were doing because they were so nervous of you know the, the the press and the reaction and that meant that there wasn't a narrative that changed minds about how good could be done uh, and i think that was a real a real worry that doesn't mean that i think that the answer was going back to um 70s statism and i think that was the problem with the, you know the corbyn narrative may have felt radical but it didn't feel new the new labor approach felt new but it didn't feel radical now I've been thinking a lot since reading the book about the word radical, actually, because Thatcher was a radical, but I don't think she ever told people she was. She told people she was a common sense politician. And I I think that there's a real sense that comes through the book that they could have been radical. They just didn't have to tell people they were being radical. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of the ironies for me that leaps out of the book, actually, is that the, the Conservative Party seems to have taken more of a leaf out of Gramsci's prison notebooks and of Labour, Patrick. I mean, what comes over in your account is the absence, and, and, and Emma's really pointed to this, of a concerted attempt on the part of the Blair Brown government to, to engineer, you know, what a Gramsci might refer to as a new common sense, uh, a climate of opinion encouraged by policies, institutional reform, you know, that was inherently hostile to conservatism, even after Labour had left office. Am I being a bit highfalutin suggesting that? And, and if I'm not, what sort of things... Do you think they they could have done or should have done to to foster that kind of common sense, that change of climate and opinion? I think it's another really important question. And I think it's also more striking because when you look at where Blair and Brown were in the period before they came to government in 1997, I think what's interesting is that in the 1980s, particularly when they were opposition politicians, um, as I try to explain in the book, Blair and Brown were part of networks where the discussion of these sorts of strategic questions about hegemony, about how to change the the currency of ideas, about how to shift the battle of ideas, were actually very... There was a very lively discussion about these issues because many on the left, the kind of people who were writing for journals like The New Statesman or New Society or Marxism Today, were, I think, very aware at the time that Thatcherism was becoming the dominant form of politics and the left was not succeeding in contesting that. So... I think that Blair and Brown were aware of these issues, but by the time they came to government, um, as you say, they did not try, I think, to make any concerted attempt to shift sort of dominant consensus as far as ideology and ideas were concerned. I mean, Gordon Brown might contest that to some extent and say that he did try to emphasise more traditional social democratic virtues. Um, The 2002 rise in national insurance contributions to pay for the NHS would be seen as the pinnacle of that. But I do agree with Emma that I think when you look across the piece, it's very hard to say that Labour succeeded in making any concerted efforts really redefine the sort of dominant framework of ideas in British politics. And I do think for a party that came to power with a majority in 1997 of 179 seats and that faced a Conservative Party, which, as you've shown in your own work, Tim, was extremely demoralised and in a very difficult position strategically. You've got to look back and say, look, this was a major wasted opportunity. It was a chance to really reshape British politics 
And it was a chance that wasn't taken. I mean, Emma, do you think, you know, clearly we perhaps all three of us agree that they could have done more, but what could they have done in that respect, do you think? I mean, what would be a kind of practical example, if you like, of, of how they could have shifted the, the debate more permanently? I mean, that's the big question, isn't it? I think for me, I would have liked to have seen moves towards a more balanced I, I'm not an economist, so when I say balanced economy, I probably don't mean what economists mean by that. But what I mean, what I mean is, you know, a better sense of worker power that it wasn't the same as union power. Things like workers on boards. Instead, there seemed to be this sense that just have loads and loads and loads of jobs, and if they're a bit insecure, that's okay. And we've seen where that's led now, because you, know, while we had a better safety net. What happened was the safety net got pulled out and the jobs got more insecure and there wasn't any sense that actually you made the argument for the safety net, you made the argument for that balance of power between capital and labour. And yeah, I, I, I'm not arguing for us to go back to the 70s, but that doesn't mean that, that, that there is only two ways of looking at this. And what I really enjoyed about this book, um, and Patrick and I have been on sort of different sides of this argument throughout our working lives, I think. And it's quite interesting that I think we may have come together in the middle now. <laughs> so I think that there, is, there was a way of saying, you know, life doesn't have to be like this. Also, the state doesn't have to be like this. And even more importantly, society doesn't have to be like this. And I think if you start to make that three-pronged argument where you're saying, you know, not just your individual life could be better, but your community could be different. And that comes from us managing things differently from top down. Now, that's not nationalising, but it is regulating. And I think that's the, the difference that we could have made is, is we were far too timid on regulating and, you know, it bit us in the bum in 2008. We, we've talked about this overweening caution on the part of um, Blair and, and Brown. And I wonder... Patrick, how we square that with what was surely one of New Labour's most fateful decisions, namely the decision not to impose controls on people from new member states coming to live and work in the UK after accession in in 2003. That, you can uh, suggest, um, led eventually to the Brexit referendum and to, to Britain leaving the EU. And yet it was a decision made by two men who were supposedly so cautious, really without a great deal of thought. No, I think that's true. And when we talk about New Labour being small C conservative, cautious, not taking you know really big consequential decisions, of course, I think what people would instantly say in response is, well, what about immigration policy? What about Iraq? <laughs> Where you, you would say that was a fairly bold, to put it politely, a fairly bold and consequential decision. Actually, another issue which um, you're question there just um, reminded me of, Tim, is, of course, the issue of the euro, Mm. where although in the end caution, you could say caution prevailed, because obviously the decision was taken that the UK should not join the single currency. Um, It may, wasn't caution in the sense that it may well have been the right decision economically, but there's certainly lots of evidence from the time, and I was witness to some of these discussions, that the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, was certainly very seized of the case for joining. I'm not saying that he therefore thought we should join the single currency irrespective of the economic evidence, but he was certainly very 
um, appraised of the arguments in favour and was making those very forcefully at the time. So, you know, you're right that there are, you can point to a number of decisions where caution didn't prevail. I mean, I don't know what Emma's judgment is on this, but I think for many people, certainly on who are on the centre-left of the Labour Party, it, it's almost as if New Labour was, on, was radical on the decisions where they didn't want them to be radical. <laughs> and actually, in the areas of social and economic policy where they would have liked a more transformational approach, caution and conservatism prevailed. I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah, uh, I mean, Iraq is the obvious example of where there was too much radicalism. <laughs> but I think it's more about a narrative. And I, I don't think you should go out and tell people, hey, I'm a radical, any more than you should go out and tell them people, hey, I'm a straight kind of guy, because that also is going to bite you in the bum. I think there were ways of changing our society that we could have taken and didn't and ways of acting that actually kind of went with the grain of, you know, the Thatcher years that we did, which we shouldn't have done, that would be seen as radical and certainly radical by a Labour government. I think, Emma, you made a very good point earlier, which was, you know, it was all about jobs and all about the economy. And to some extent, that resonates with what Patrick says in the book about, you know, the central importance that Blair and Brown accorded to getting the economy right so that the economy didn't upend their Labour government like it had upended other Labour governments. But I guess in some ways, as Patrick shows, that was also part of the problem. And it comes back to this point you make about narrative in, in that um, it was all about pragmatism. It was all about delivery. It was all about, you know, what was being done kind of instrumentally for voters rather than, you know, weaving a more inspiring values-based story. So with the result that when the economy stopped delivering, then uh, Blair and Brown didn't really have much to fall back on. Does, does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. What matters is what works phrase is fine, except quite often what works is outside of your control. And mm. if that's what you've got, if that's what you want people to think of you, and it's the only story you're telling about yourself, you've got nothing else when there's an international crisis that you can do. I mean, you know, I'll say you do very little about Gordon Brown did a great deal very very well but we were fundamentally exposed to that crisis because we hadn't done enough of the spade work to organize again and I think partly the spade work and partly the thinking there was a uh yeah I can't remember the phrase you use in the book Patrick but you you sort of say they were almost institutionally captured by the city um, and the city could do no wrong. And once you start thinking that way and thinking that it's essential to Labour's economic story to think that way, then you are going to be blindsided by some poorer actors. I think it's also interesting. It's it's striking that Gordon Brown, who was obviously in many ways the architect of New Labour's economic po policy and many of its social policies as well, because the Treasury was such a powerhouse of social policy thinking in that period, as well as macroeconomic management and fiscal policy. I think Gordon Brown, certainly as the, as the government progressed, he did seem to become aware that resting Labour's claim to office on economic competence alone was not sufficient. And so you saw various attempts to try to create narratives that were, as it were, alternatives to the economic story. So you will be both, no doubt, remember um, Gordon Brown's speeches on Britishness. The difficulty, of course, though, was that the Britishness narrative brought with it its own tensions, um, particularly, as I was saying earlier, at a point when devolution was beginning to you know, raise its own problems about the, the governance of the UK, tensions between the four nations, difficulties that were being posed by the new devolved institutions. So 
for different reasons, I think the Britishness story never really took off. And then, yeah, there were other attempts to talk about active citizenship, for example, that were, I think, never really developed or never really built upon. So it's true that I think ultimately when it came down to Labour justifying um, its period in government and why indeed it should win the forthcoming election, the claims always came back to growth, jobs, relative prosperity. There was no attempt to locate them within, within any kind of alternative story. And I think in that sense... You know, if you look back to the what, what is significant about the post-war government is that the Attlee government did have a kind of bigger story about Britain and about what it was doing to reshape British society in a way that I think the Blair Brown government's never really succeeded in developing. What would you say, Patrick, to the argument that, I mean, yes, there was Iraq. Yes, there was the global financial crisis. You know, we live in a more consumerist age, so, so voters aren't as easily satisfied. But actually, in the end, the, the reason that the government um, lost power in, in, in 2010 was really thermostatic in the sense that, you know, New Labour had kind of done its job. It had repaired some of the damage that had been done to the popular public services by 18 years of Conservative government and, and voters began, you know, to think they'd like the other lot back and a, and a bit less spending and a bit less tax. What would you say to that? Well, I think there's some truth in that argument because obviously the financial crisis presented the Conservatives with some enormous political advantages. They could obviously argue that Labour had overspent in government and that it had wrecked the economy, the Mm -hmm. failure to regulate the financial sector that Emma referred to earlier. This was ammunition that was very powerful. Mm, Great stories, as Emma would say. Well, they were. They were great stories. And of course, also, I think in a sense, the reason why they damaged Labour um, acutely was because they also reinforced voters' sense of disappointment because one of the things that you might expect of a Labour government is that it would be more robust in its regulation of the financial sector. Mm. Instead, what you got was a sense that actually Labour had been even more permissive and liberal than previous Conservative governments. So mm. it was also, I think, a sense of expectations being dashed and voters really disappointed that Labour hadn't got that right. Mm. I do think, though, that obviously Labour's defeat in 2010 was perhaps more contingent than it looks Well, it was contingent in the sense that it was quite close. I mean, again, I should say I'd worked for Gordon Brown in in, in the year or so before the election. And certainly for many of those months, I think many people internally within the Labour government thought that Labour was heading for a very significant defeat in 2010. The outcome was much closer. And I think that the certainly the sense that I have of, of Labour could have done better is that there was an opportunity around 2010 Um, to argue that the financial crisis made necessary a social democratic reform in government that could sort out the financial system, introduce deep reforms of the economy, rebalance the economy, as Emma was mentioning earlier. But of course, it was never really able to project that narrative or that story convincingly, maybe because voters thought, well, they've had the chance to do it and they haven't, so why should we trust them now? Um, Maybe it was also a a product of exhaustion. Another theme that I mentioned in the book, of course, and um, Emma will have thoughts on this as well, no doubt, is the corrosive effect of the Blair-Brown wars, which we haven't really talked about so far in this discussion. And I do think that um, while while there's a tendency to dismiss those as trivial, I think that one of the ways in which they did undermine Labour was that they did undermine its capacity for, for political renewal. You know, the conversation became too much about whether you're on Gordon's side or Tony's side, and not enough about thinking through 
what Labour had done well, what it had done less well, and how it needed, therefore, to renew itself in terms of policy and politics. And, you know, as Emma said, to tell a different story with a different narrative. I don't think it ever got itself in the position, certainly by 2010, where it was doing that. And part of the reason is because Labour was internally exhausted by the kind of ongoing Blair Brown civil war. So, Emma, um, TBGBs, um, did you play a part in all that? Not really. I think I did what a lot of what 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 nearly everybody does, and I've been again to something I've been thinking about with Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn. We project onto leaders our own sensibilities, um, mm-hmm. so we all think that they are exactly like us and have all the same values and ideas and. And, and ideas for implementing those values as we do. Real life very rarely persuades us that we're wrong, even though we always are. Um, so there would have been this real sense that because Tony Blair was Tony Blair, you had to be on Gordon Brown's side if you didn't agree with things that Tony Blair had done, despite the fact that some of the things you might have disagreed with, say PFI, had come from the Treasury. There's an awful lot of projection in politics. What Patrick says is so right about that personal narrative stuff. Um, one of the mistakes I've made frequently in my career is is downplaying that and, and not seeing it as important as it as it is. I don't think it should be, but it is. And so, for example, I strongly supported Ed Miliband to be Labour leader. I was really baffled by the idea that it mattered that he was the younger brother of the two. But it really did in the end. That, that that stabbed his older brother in the back narrative was one of the things that came out on the doorstep a lot. And, you know, we, there's the politics we want and there's the politics we have. And we've got to play the game we have. Yeah. OK, well, let's just before we finish, indulge in a bit of political fantasy here and imagine just for a moment that uh, that by some miracle, some people say Labour does manage to win the next election. What do we think it can learn from the 13 years in government after 1997, both in terms of do's and, and don'ts? Um, the do's, I would say, do your homework beforehand. The, the amount of policy work that went into the period between 92 and 97 actually gave Labour a really flying start. And I think that's why they won the second um, Mm. landslide. I would say do have not just a story to tell about the party. I, I think we focus on that a little too much, but have a story to tell about the country. In five years' time, this country will look like, because actually that really matters, but it has to be deliverable. So that's why I would combine that homework with with narrative. In terms of don'ts, I think I would say don't air your dirty linen in public all the damn time. Don't be confused by what business is and what it wants. Business wants profit. You can work very well with business partners, but for example, you are never going to have as strong a procurement department as they will. So just beware when you're making contracts and making those partnerships that business has a really simple you know, under-the-line, profit-driven motive. Government's much more complicated. They have a much easier way of negotiating. So I would say just be really conscious of who you're talking to and why and what their motives are. Put yourselves in their shoes rather than trying to just appease. Patrick, from both the inside and, and the outside in your splendid book, what would be some do's and don'ts for, for Keir Starmer if, if, he's, if he's the leader who wins the next election? Well, I think one do is use the period of opposition wisely um, because it will affect then how effective you are in government. 
obviously, when you're in opposition, the temptation is to spend your time attacking the government, undermining their record and building your own credentials for competence and trust and so on. And that's perfectly understandable. But it is really important to make sure that the work is going on in the background, not just to develop new policies, but really think about the hard issues that you're likely to face in power so that you begin to anticipate them and begin to have, I think, in the wider party, some of the um, difficult conversations about what you might need to do in office rather than just waiting to get into government and having all of the arguments then. I think that in terms of what Labour shouldn't do, I think one of the really big lessons it's going to have to learn, which comes back to a theme that's come out constantly in this conversation, is about striking the right balance between central power and devolved and decentralised government. And that's going to be very difficult because the reality is when ministers move into government, obviously having been in opposition, sometimes for a long period, once you think you have your hands on the levers of power, it's very tempting to hold on to them. And what Labour has to consider, if it's going to deal with these issues we've discussed in this conversation about housing policy or about providing more effective affordable childcare or improving the school system and so on, it's got to have a model of decentralisation. And I think that requires hard thinking in opposition and preparation, but it also means in power, avoiding the temptation to do everything from the centre and actually putting in place a system that isn't going to lead you to do that by default. I do think that's a substantive governance lesson. For parties that are operating in government today, you have to be able to operate as a government in Westminster that's able to have discussions, conversations with parties other than your own. You know, the, the days are gone of the unitary British state with one party in power governing all of the institutions. You, you could have a nationalist party in government in Scotland. You could have the Liberal Democrats in power in Wales. You know, you're going to confront a governance landscape where you've got to be able to work with other political parties and develop a strategy to do that. One of the difficulties that Labour is in now is obviously its very weak position in Scotland. I mean, that may change over the next few months for a whole set of reasons to do with having a new leader and the problems that the SNP has got into. But the, the long-term deterioration of Labour's position in Scotland was partly a consequence of how it behaved in government and its difficulty in working in that devolved context. So I think, you know, a lesson for government, for me, would be you've got to have a strategy to deal with um, operating in a devolved government context. I'll just uh, leap on my Gramscian <laughs> hobby horse to, to finish uh, and ask you to, I mean, one, one thing it would seem to me, to be obvious to do, uh, would be to, to bring in proportional representation rather than first past the post. What do you feel about that, Emma? Uh, well, I'm an AV plus gal myself. That is the problem that we've endlessly had um, when, because we all kind of agree, uh, or at least a, a majority of Labour Party members agree that we should have a different system. We just can't agree on what that different system is. It was exactly what happened to House of Lords reform. I support electoral reform. I mean, AV plus would be... A good system. I think AV might be a stepping stone, but of course introduces its own contradictions in a sense. So, I mean, AV plus would seem like the model that would probably be favoured by Labour members. I think there's a consensus that the electoral system probably needs to change in the light of devolution and also kind of shift in politics. But there isn't as yet agreement. I do sense, though, that in, in the grassroots of the Labour Party, opinion is shifting. And I think we probably have a leader now in Keir Starmer who's more committed to electoral reform than probably any leader in certainly in recent times in, in, in the last 30 or 40 years. And so that might, you know, really begin to shift things. But of course, again, you know, my point earlier still stands, which is 
faced with the prospect of being a prime minister, having a, a majority through which you can carry out your policies without any opposition is obviously very tempting. And that's what has put this great impediment in the way of electoral reform. I mean, when Tony Blair came to power in 1997, as you know, he was in some ways reasonably favourably disposed to electoral reform. And of course, there was the commission chaired by the Liberal Democrat peer, Lord Jenkins, which looked at this question in the late 1990s. But of course, it was all swept away under the carpet. And I do think it comes down in part to mentality. It's not just about the mechanics of the electoral system. It's about how you as a political party think you do politics. And I think the problem for Labour has been that it thinks that it can achieve social and economic change by having a majority government at Westminster. I think one of the lessons of the 97 to 2010 governments, which my book tries to expose, is that actually there are limits to what you can do with majority party power at Westminster and you need a more subtle strategy if you want to achieve radical economic and social reform. We've just spent five minutes talking about how we elect people. I mean, I'm not against electoral reform. I would vote for it. But the how we get the people is less important than what the people do and how they how the actual mechanics of government rather than the mechanics of voting for the government so i just i'm not sure that electoral reform changes that much if nothing else changes right well uh, we can have that debate perhaps another time he says as a supporter of uh, mixed member proportional but let's not get too nerdy <laughs> about that i i'd just like to thank uh, both emma and patrick for coming along today to have this debate and to discuss Patrick's excellent book, which, just as a reminder, is called The British Labour Party in Opposition and Power, 1979 to 2019. And it's got a subtitle, Forward March Halted? Question mark. It's published by Routledge. Can I just say thank you to you for listening? You can find the Myland Institute on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook and you can find us on Instagram. We also have a great website where you can find all our other podcast episodes and also some of the videos that we produce. Do recommend us to your friends. Do rate us if that's the kind of thing you're into. And we'll see you next time.